Amen. Good morning. I got to tell you, it is a great day again to be in the house of the Lord, to be able to worship together in truth, to sing his word, to hear his word. I am thankful uh, for these opportunities, encouraged by these opportunities. I do want to take a moment and thank those of you who came by yesterday. Uh, we celebrated uh, Mr. Vincent Forbes. If you don't know Mr. Forbes, he celebrated his 100th birthday up here yesterday. And my goodness, it was quite the pomp and circumstance. That brother has a lot of friends. Um, I got a little nervous when uh, half of Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department showed up. Um, because I had not known what kind of trouble Mr. Forbes had been in before, but thankfully uh, they were here to celebrate him, and so it was a joyous day. So for those of you who uh, drove by, wishing him well, saying happy birthday, I know that meant a lot to him and, and to his family. So thank you for coming and being a part of that. Um, as you can probably guess by now, we are still walking through our series here, Letters from the Pastor. We are in First Timothy chapter 6, so we are now entering our final chapter of 1 Timothy. Again, we're still in our series called Letters from the Pastor. And uh, let me just go ahead and as you're finding your place in 1 Timothy 6, let me know, let you know what's going to be happening over the next couple of weeks. We will actually be finishing 1 Timothy next Sunday. Um, and then we are going to then come back from Thanksgiving after that and we will begin our Advent series. And then what we will do is we will pick this series back up, uh, Letters from the Pastor, as we dive into the new year with 2 Timothy. But in the meantime, as we look at our passage today, we still have much to see, much to learn as Paul continues to write to Timothy and as he continues to write to the church at Ephesus. And so, um, as you've already heard, as we have already sung, the goal for today is to see that we as followers of Jesus Christ are called to be satisfied in God instead of being satisfied in the world and in our material things. Now, as we look into our passage today, our passage is going to reveal really what can be seen and clearly called one of the most glaring blind spots for Christians today and for Christians throughout American history. Now, again, we're going to look into this passage and in verses 1 and 2, these first two verses, Paul will again address slavery, which again is interesting for us to note because historically there were those in the South who claimed to be professing Christians who would go to church, they would sing, they would study God's word, and all the while they would either be and remain okay or not speak out against the mistreatment of men, women, and children in our country as they were treated as slaves. You see, we need to pause and think about that in light of these first two verses because it really is scary to think about when you look at our history to see that we were believers who had good intentions. We attended worship regularly. We attended the study of the word weekly, and yet these things were not enough to prevent this particular blind spot in our country and in, in our country's history. And yet here we are today. And sadly, many of us in the modern evangelical church, we are still going through the motions. We are still overlooking passages like the ones that we have before us today, and we are still missing the blind spots that we have in our life. 
Now, as we move beyond verses one and two this morning, we'll look to verses three through 10, which is where we will spend the bulk of our time as we see the glaring sin for the modern evangelical church in America, which Paul will deal with directly, and it is known as materialism. So what I want us to do today is let's read the word of God together and then let's see how we as believers are now called to place our eyes on the Lord remaining fixed upon him and learn what it means to be satisfied in God. So if you have your Bibles and I hope you do, I would invite you to turn with me now to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We will begin reading in verse 1. And once you have found your place, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the word of God. Now again, these are Paul's words written to Timothy, written to the church at Ephesus. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who, are, uh, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich uh, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this time. And we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to sing your word, to hear your word spoken. Father, we thank you now for the opportunity that we have to study your word. And so, Lord, we ask and pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds for your truth today. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come in a time and a place and freely worship you. So, Father, we pray now that that we would lay our distractions aside, that we would simply focus on you, and in these next few moments together, we pray, God, that you and you alone would be glorified. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for delighting in us. And, Father, we pray that your name would be magnified in the moments that we have together. Father, help us to see that you have called us to be satisfied in you. Thank you for your provision. 
Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Father, we lift up your name, for it is in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, the reality is, before we jump into this passage, clearly and sadly, we can see that materialism has blinded many of us from seeing the things that God would have us see. In fact, there are many who come to church in America who have failed to take notice of the pressing needs of the world all around us. In fact, I would probably uh, not be misspoken if I said these words in light of the pandemic, in light of elections. I'd imagine that many of us have been distracted by what's been happening right in front of us, that we have failed to see what has been happening all over our world. In fact, in this moment, I would encourage you before we get into our text to take a step back for a moment from our own first world problems here in the United States and let's take note of what is happening in our world today. You see, if you look at our world beyond the United States, you will clearly see that there is spiritual need all over the world. Now think about this for a moment. There are seven billion people on our planet. One third of them, according to studies, claim Christianity. So what that means, according to the same studies, is 4.7 billion people on this planet are on a path that leads directly to eternal hell. Out of that 4.7 billion, 2 billion of those very same people currently have no access to the gospel. In other words, they do not have the word of God, nor do they have the gospel in mission. Now, knowing these numbers, we can also know that some of these very people live in the community that God has us in today. And so we need to realize that there is urgent spiritual need all around us. But at the same time, let's recognize that there's also a physical need in the world today. Now, think about this for a moment. Currently, according to studies, one billion people live and die on less than one dollar a day. Studies also indicate that one billion other people live on less than two dollars a day. Now, just to give you some perspective on that, what we have clearly learned is half of our world's population struggles to find food, find shelter, and find medical care for the same amount of money that we spend on our favorite fountain drink or sweet tea for lunch. In fact, before this day is over, 20,000 people will die due to starvation or preventable disease. And yet these individuals are poor. They are powerless. They are dying in total obscurity with no one speaking on their behalf and no one offering to help. And yet we sit comfortably ignoring their cries. Now, I'm not sharing this information to make you uncomfortable this morning. I'm not sharing this for you to be discouraged either. Rather, I'm, I'm telling you this information so that all of us as believers in Christ will begin to realize the great kingdom opportunity that we now have as a church. 
In fact, I want you to know this today, that if you make $25,000 or more a year, you are currently in the top 10% of the world's wealthiest people. And so as we look at our text today, we have to ask ourselves this question. As an American evangelical church, what are we doing with our wealth? Well, according to recent studies by Lifeway and the Barna Research Group, we see that on average, Christians give 2.5% to their churches. Their churches then, in turn, give 2% of those funds to overseas missions in order to help end slavery and human trafficking and to help spread the gospel. Now, again, I'm not a math person, but if I'm doing quick math here, we can quickly realize that every $100 that American Christians Christians make, five cents goes to world missions and the advancement of the gospel. You see, this is an indictment on the local church. As churches, we have prioritized our own comforts. We have prioritized the need for more buildings, the need for more stuff, the need for more programs, the need for more comforts, while we have brothers and sisters on the other side of the world who are suffering from starvation. They are suffering because they find themselves in human trafficking. They are suffering because of a lack of clean water. And so now we have to ask ourselves as believers, what can we do in order to take part in the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world in order to meet both the urgent physical needs but also the urgent spiritual needs? Well, personally, I believe that we need to be willing to leverage what God has given to us in order to help support kingdom movements both in our country and around the world. Now, Paul actually speaks to this in our text today. You see, Paul is again going to address both slavery and materialism. These were both problems that plagued Ephesus during his day. So he uses this writing to reveal to us that if we are not faithful to the word of God, if we do not obey the Bible, if we continue to fall to materialism and the desire of wanting more, then not only will people continue to die with great physical and spiritual need, but we ourselves could ultimately find ourselves on a path that leads to both ruin and destruction. So again, let's look at our passage today together at what Paul will ultimately call our greatest need. And again, that need is for us as believers to be satisfied in God. Look again at verses one and two. Paul opens this section by addressing the issue of bond servants or slavery. Now, we have already talked a good bit about bond servants. We've already talked a good bit about slavery, both in 1 Timothy and Titus, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, on these particular verses. However, I want to clearly state again that the Bible itself condemns slavery, In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we read that slavery actually undermines God's creation. You look over at Job chapter 31, verse 15, and we see in Job's own story that all people have equal dignity before God. 
It's why Job refuses to mistreat anyone, especially those who are his servants. Flip over to Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, and hear Paul's words to the church at Galatia. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So in these passages already, we can see that we as a culture, we as a society, we all have differences. And yet, according to the word of God, we all have equal dignity before God, and we have equal position in the name of Christ. Now, coming back to our verses today, Paul begins addressing the tension that has been created between bond servants or slaves and masters that was ultimately brought on by the false teachers that are now found in the church of Ephesus. Now, again, we need to recognize here that many people in our world and our society today have looked at this passage and they say, see, the Bible promotes slavery, but that's not what Paul is doing here. Paul is looking upon a situation and we need to see it the same way that Paul does. He recognizes that this particular situation is imperfect. However, even in imperfect situations, Christians still have the responsibility to act in a way that honors God. I would encourage many of us today to think about that in light of the pandemic. How are we acting today in a way that honors God? I would encourage many brothers and sisters on social media who are in churches worshiping today in light of the words that they're saying about the presidential election, how are we honoring God in this particular situation? Now, Paul, in coming back to verse 1 and 2, speaks of non-Christian masters in verse 1. He speaks of the Christian masters in verse 2. But notice that in each of these passages, the bondservants themselves are called upon to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, the key word for us today is the word honor, which is the same root word that Paul uses earlier when teaching us that we should honor our widows. In other words, just like our widows, the masters, the people in authority are to be given full respect as as those who were created in the image of God. Now, why would Paul speak of this particular honor? Well, he answers later by saying, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. You see, Paul's deepest concern for the church at Ephesus, what should be our deepest concern today, is that in all of our relationships, we should desire for the name of God to be glorified. We should desire for the name of Jesus Christ to be made known. In other words, when we come to church, never should there be a day where we honor the name of man. Rather, every day that we are in worship, every day that we are faithfully serving the Lord in our communities, every day we should be honoring the name of Jesus Christ. That is the calling of the believer. So whether you're a student, whether you're an employee, 
Every time you turn in a project, every time you make a decision for your company, you are to reflect the glory of God in that work so that the gospel of Jesus Christ will advance. Verse 2, Paul now turns his attention to Christian masters and how we are to serve them. But at the same time, we see that as Christian leaders, we are to care for their employees. They are to serve their employees selflessly as well and not take advantage of them. Again, notice Paul's goal here. His goal is for God to be glorified in whatever role it is that we serve. So whether it's in school, in our classes, whether it's in our working relationships, whether we are the employer or the employee, whether we are teachers, whether we are administrators, whether we are in positions of authority or not, Paul's exhortation here for us has a missionary motivation. You see, the goal is for those who are over us, those who have authority over us. The goal is for them to see the hard work of the believer and then to be drawn to the glory of God and the fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, when we are working, when we are serving, whether it's in the church, in our community, in our workplaces, people should be able to look to us and say to us, what is it about you that makes you so unique? What is it about you that makes you so different? Why do you work in a good way the way you work? And so it's in that moment we can tell them because Jesus Christ is Lord. And in my hands and in my work, I am here to honor him. So you see, we have to ask ourselves this morning, do people see God's glory in the work that we do? Do people see the gospel of Jesus Christ in the work that we do? Do they see God's glory in the gospel in the way that we lead and even in the way that we speak? You see, even in our working relationships, though many of our working relationships may not be ideal, I get it. Some people think that as a pastor, we come in each day and it's a day of roses. I had somebody say to me once, thankfully not at this church, say to me that I imagine you get up and teach on Sunday and then Monday you're on a golf course. Trust me, if that were true, I'd be in the masters right now. I don't play golf. I do the bowling version of golf, top golf. That's as good as it gets. Maybe putt-putt on occasion if they have the windmill that works, okay? Even in the working relationships in the church, even as the lead pastor for our church, I have a responsibility to press the gospel and to advance the gospel in my actions and in my words as I lead our staff. And even as our staff here as a church, we have the opportunity to advance the gospel and to press the gospel in the way we speak, in the way that we work. So again, when it comes back to our working relationships, whether they be great, whether they be, I don't know, less than ideal, maybe they were great a year ago, maybe in 2020 because of the pandemic, it's become much less than ideal, whatever it is. 
Are we serving with joy, knowing that our satisfaction should be in Christ and Christ alone? Now we're gonna move here into verses three through 10. And this is again where we're gonna spend the bulk of our time. So now Paul turns his attention to uh, the believers in guarding their hearts against materialism. Now we're gonna look at verse three. And again, Paul speaks to the false teachers here and he begins by referring to what can be best described as their destructive cravings. You see, in verse 4 and 5, we see destructive craving number one. It's when Paul speaks of controversy and the quarrels about their words. You see, the false teachers brought on this particular craving. They had been teaching what was contrary to the truth, and what was happening was these particular teachings were now clearly leading to divisions and factions all within the church. So Paul, in again speaking of the false teachers, says in verse 4 that they are puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. Now this is important to pay attention to because Paul is saying that these false teachers are both ignorant and they are also arrogant, which is a very bad combination. Paul then goes on to speak of their actions and their words, saying that they produce envy and dissension, slander and evil suspicions. Then he says of them in verse 5 that their words have grown amongst those who are listening to them and those who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, here is Paul telling us that these people, these false teachers, these once leaders within the church of Ephesus with Timothy, they were now willing to lead others away from the truth of the word of God in order to grow their own faction. You see, they were using their authority. They were using their years of service. They were using their ability as teachers and as people who were considered of honor to lie about the church, to lie about the word of God, and yes, to lie about the leadership in the church in order to create division. In other words, Paul tells us that these false teachers were using their status as a leader in order to profit off of the people around them. Now, why the constant warnings from Paul against these false teachings? Well, the simple answer is this, because of most of what they were saying was clearly not true. You see, we in our churches today, we are in a new day. People keep asking the question, and it's not just in our church, it's in churches around us, I was having a conversation about this with several pastors this week. The question I hear more often than not is, when are we going to go back to normal? We're not going back to normal. I don't know how we define normal, but whatever it was, if it refers to how we were a year ago or two years ago, we're not going back. I recognize that that's painful to hear. I understand that that is hurtful because that is what we want and desire. But here's the reality. You don't even have to look at the pandemic to see that we're not going back to normal. You can look at history. 
Notice how much changed for people when Pearl Harbor happened December 7th, 1941. Notice how all of a sudden we became skeptical of cultures and people around us, particularly if those cultures lived out on the West Coast. Notice how our world changed on September 11th when the World Trade Centers were attacked. You see, prior to that, I remember a time where we could go to the airport and you could literally walk up to the gate, watch the plane land, watch it pull up, and then watch your family member come off the plane and there was no security. But now, because of 9-11, notice what happens. You can't do that anymore. If you're flying in, you have to go through security checks. You get wanded. You get put in a machine. Your stuff gets looked over and looked over again. So knowing what happened with Pearl Harbor, knowing what happened with 9-11, what makes us honestly believe that coming off a pandemic, we are ever going to go back to what was normal? It's not going to happen. Now again, I recognize that's hard to hear. It's frustrating to hear. But here's the reality. Let's not allow our heartaches, let's not allow our frustrations, let's not allow what it was that we missed about yesterday's church to lead us into lying and creating dissension and disunity about what is happening in the church. You see, I recognize that the church looks different today. However, the one thing I know that was the same yesterday, today, and forever is that Jesus Christ is still Lord. And we still have the word of God. You see, we need to be careful when it comes to listening to people. When they begin speaking of our leaders in the church, when they begin speaking of accusations about what is coming for the church, let's do an honest assessment of what it is that they are telling us. If they are speaking of another believer, let's go ask that believer. If they are speaking in a way that may contradict the word of God, then let's go to the word of God to make sure that what we are hearing is entirely true. Because here's the reality. Just as Paul and Timothy were experiencing in the church at Ephesus and they were seeing firsthand, we too can recognize that even today there are wolves among us. And so we have to listen actively and carefully. Now notice where Paul goes from here. He gives us this first destructive craving and then he pauses in verse 6 and he tells us, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now I would probably underline or highlight that verse in your Bible. Verse 6, verse 7 as well. These are great Words to memorize because you see here is Paul's exhortation to the people of God. He says this, he says to be content in the gospel. In other words, just as he said back in verse three, we are to hold fast to sound teaching. You see, because here's the reality for the believer. Until the day when the Lord returns or until the day the Lord calls us home, we will never graduate from the gospel. 
And so we are to remain in the truth that is the word of God. We are to spend our lives studying and reading the word of God. And if we are going to hold fast to anything, let's hold on to the one thing that will outlast all that is on this earth. And that is Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and his holy word. Believers, Yes, the day is uncertain, but the foundation has not changed. The foundation that is Jesus Christ, the the foundation that is the very word of God, though everything shakes and crumbles around us, the anchor still holds and the foundation is still firm. We move from there into verses 7 through 10, and here we see Paul's second destructive craving from the false teachers. You see, they crave material possessions. Now here Paul begins to warn us to be on guard against a craving for money or against a craving for possessions that may lead us to desire whatever it is, the next best thing that may come along that will ultimately never satisfy us. Now again, Paul's warning here is a similar warning to what we see from Jesus Christ back in Matthew chapter 6, uh, Matthew chapter 6 verse 19 through 21. You see, it's there that Jesus cautions us by saying, don't collect for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, did you catch Jesus' last statement here? He is teaching the disciples, the people who had gathered around him, and us today, that money itself is an indicator of our hearts. You see, our checkbook, or for those of you who don't write checks anymore, our card statement reflects our true priorities. Now again, money itself, in and of itself, is a blessing. However, it can also be a barrier to God if we are not careful. Now notice how Paul changes his tone as he gets into verse 9 and he speaks of materialism. He tells us that materialism will lead us to fall into temptation, into a snare. In other words, he teaches us that materialism is deceptive. You see, there are things that are going to look desirable and they may lead us to indulge in them in unhealthy ways. And if we are not careful, if we are not paying attention before we know it, it can kill our souls. He then tells us in verse 9 again that materialism can lead us into many senseless and harmful desires. In other words, Paul is teaching the people that materialism in and of itself is also dangerous. You see, the the love of money can send us down a path that is full of peril and full of danger. The love of money can render deadly fruits, things like selfishness and cheating, fraud and perjury, robbery, envy, quarreling, hatred, violence, and yes, even murder. You see, materialism is the breeding ground for thousands of other sins. And the reality is, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are not immune to them. In fact, notice here what Scripture says about materialism and how it can lead to ruin. In Joshua chapter 7, we have Achan and his family 
who were put to death because of Achan's desire for forbidden possessions. You look over in 1 Kings chapter 4 and chapter 6, and again in chapter uh, 10, you see Solomon, despite his wisdom, Solomon, despite his favor with God, was tempted constantly by the love of money and the love of possessions. Again, look to Matthew chapter 19 and, and Luke chapter 6, and here Jesus warns of the difficulty of the rich in entering heaven. And then in Luke chapter 6, he pronounces a woe statement upon the wealthy, warning them of where their wealth will lead them. You see, the Bible is clear that seeking the next best thing leads to a path that is both deceptive and a path that is dangerous. But then pay attention to the last part of verse 9. Paul teaches us that materialism will plunge people into ruin and destruction. In other words, according to Paul, materialism is destructive. Now, the word I want to emphasize here in this particular phrase is the word plunge. You see, this is actually the same word that is used by Luke when describing the boats that were sinking due to the abundance of fish that were caught. Now, when you look back to Paul's point here in referencing that same word that Luke used, Paul is teaching us that a love for money, a love for stuff will drown us eternally. And so Paul's warning us here of what could lead to our eternal ruin and ultimately what could lead to final judgment. You see, here's the truth. None of the stuff that we accumulate will go with us. You can go back and read that for yourself in verse 7. But let me take it one step further possession or the desire to want more, the stuff that we accumulate, it will always let us down at the most important point in our life. And that is when death is at hand. Now, Paul, in getting to verse 10, recognizing this, recognizing that we need to put to death materialism and the desire to want more. He calls believers here to run from the love of money and to run to the loving arms of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is teaching that money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, should we stop working? Should we stop providing? No, absolutely not. But in our work, in our provision, let's be reminded of the one who has provided. Let us be reminded of the one who we can and should always be satisfied in, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now again, notice Paul here. Paul, in speaking to the church at Ephesus and in speaking to Timothy, whether he had much, whether he had abundance, or whether he had little, it didn't matter to Paul because he had Christ, and that was enough for Paul. And Paul's desire was that he wanted Timothy 
And he wanted the church at Ephesus to share in that same satisfaction that comes from knowing Christ and Christ alone. You see, as believers, as we've read through 1 Timothy together, we are called to live simply, called to give sacrificially, and called to thrive eternally. Now, the way we do this is by realizing that in Christ, the relationship that we can have in Jesus Christ, that in that relationship, we can now know that God is enough. You see, we are where we are for a reason. So since we are where we are, let's plant, let's take root where we are, and let's work for the glory of God, and let us in our work see the advancement of the kingdom of God that can be found knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want to close our morning by sharing with you a a story of a Methodist pastor and missionary by the name of John Wesley. You see, John Wesley served from 1703 to 1791. It was in the year 1731 that Wesley made the decision to limit his expenses to have more money to give the poor. He decided that the accumulation of stuff wasn't ever going to satisfy him. So in that first year, his income was 30 pounds, his expenses were 28 pounds, and so he had two pounds left over to give. The next year, as his ministry expanded... So did his income. In fact, his income doubled. But John Wesley still lived on 28 pounds. And that second year, he gave away 32 pounds. Now, his ministry continued to expand and his popularity continued to grow and opportunities for him to share and to serve continued to increase. And so his income continued to increase so that by year four, he was giving away 92 pounds to the poor and to the voiceless. Now, let me put that into perspective for you today. If these numbers are correct, and we put them in modern day numbers. John Wesley was making roughly $160,000 a year, but he was living on $28,000 a year, giving the rest away for the poor and the powerless, giving the rest of, the, of it away for the advancement of the gospel. You see, John Wesley believed A Christian's increase in income should result not in an increased standard of living, but rather an increased standard of giving. Now, when you look at this in terms of our church, we actually had a conversation about this in stewardship and amongst our staff. Now, again, as a rule, as a pastor, I don't know what you give. I never know what you want to give. I'm uncomfortable when you hand me your tithe. I'd rather you not. There are plates here in the front. There's a box in the back. There's a box on the office. You can mail it. You can give online. Please don't hand your pastor a check unless that's going to the help feed the pastor fund directly. Then you can give it to my wife. That's where it goes anyway. We did some quick numbers. 
And with the help of our stewardship team and our financial secretary, we quickly realized this, that for our church, I'm not speaking of the American Evangelical Church, I'm speaking of Southside Baptist Church. Our active members, those who are in the room presently and those who are watching or will be watching uh, in a day or two's time when when this service gets posted. If our people, if our family units were actively tithing, if they were actively giving 10%, then let me tell you what would happen in our church. We would see an average increase of almost $100,000 to our church budget. Now you may ask, well, why on earth would we do that? Because here's the reality. Imagine how much more we could do in the name of Jesus Christ for missions. You see, we don't want to spend the money on our own stuff. We're not looking to build more buildings. Now, yes, we are looking to fix and to renovate the properties that are here because the reality is some of this stuff is falling apart. But since day one, we have been clear, I have been clear as your pastor, what our heart's desire is. We want to see people discipled in the word of God. We want to then train up elders who can then become missionaries and go and plant new works and plant new churches so that the kingdom of God will advance and not the kingdom of Southside Baptist Church. You see, it's not about us. So imagine how much more we could do if we all actively tithe together. You see, as we finish this text this morning, my prayer is as we look again to this passage that we would drop the mistreatment of people, that we would drop the materialism that the world tells us we should have and we should desire. That as believers, we would realize that all we have, all that we ever will need is in Christ and Christ alone. And that we will live and serve in such a way that brings him glory so that our desire daily would be for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a world that is ripped in two with division with factions, with conspiracies, with separation. May we be the ones who show the world that all we have, all that we will ever need, can be found in Jesus Christ. So believers, let's speak, act, and live in a way that shows our world what it means to be satisfied in God. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you for this day. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to gather here, to gather in this place and to worship you. Father, I pray that as we continue to work, may we work for your glory and your honor. Father, may we work to see the advancement of the kingdom. Father, we praise you for the good news that we are hearing as many in our faith family are sharing their faith, both in action and word. We thank you that by your spirit, people are coming to faith and knowing you.
So Father, we pray this morning that you would continue to give us the boldness to make you known. That whether in word or whether in deed, that people would look to us and see that there is something uniquely different about us. And when they ask, God, give us the boldness to speak of who you are. Father, shift our heart. Help us to focus on you. Recognizing that we're not here to grow the kingdom of Southside. We are here to grow the kingdom of Jesus. So, Father, help us to lay aside our worldly desires. Show us the materialism that we are holding on to. And, Father, help us to give to the mission that you have called us to. Lord, we know that you have a great plan for this place. We know that you have a great work that you are preparing us for. We recognize that there's going to be tension. We recognize that there's going to be division. We recognize that we are in the midst of a pandemic. We are still dealing with heartache. But in the midst of it all, Father, may we see that we are to be satisfied in you and you alone. Father, for those of us who celebrate today, help us to recognize that the greatest joy we have is in you. For those of us who are confused today, help us to see the clarity that could be found in knowing you according to your word. And Father, for those of us who grieve, help us to seek comfort in knowing that you, Lord, you are all that we need. Father, help us to rest in you. Help us to be satisfied in you. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. And it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.